Hi, this is the podcast recording of Generations Home Church with Noah Johnson. Enjoy. The teaching of your word and that you would, you would teach us and you would speak to us. Uh, it says in your word that the, the word of God is like a two-edged sword that splits between bone and marrow. It splits between the intentions and desires of the heart, Lord. Your word is like a scalpel that goes into our heart to do work. It's precise. And it cuts us to the quick. And so I pray that it would do that now as we gather together and open your word. I I thank you that I have the privilege of getting to teach, Lord. Um, and it's just a testament to who you are, Lord. Everyone here that knows me knows that I am nothing. I am no one. Um, so often I feel like, Paul, I'm the, the least of the least, the greatest of sinners. And yet, I so often also feel exactly like David, Lord, where he said, the, the lines have truly fallen to me. The lines have truly fallen to me. And I can't remember how the rest of that verse goes now. But his sentiment was, Lord, everything that you bring into my life is blessing. Everything that you bring into my life is good. And sometimes I feel that way, Lord. I feel like I'm the most favored man on the whole earth. And so I pray right now that as I speak, that your spirit would take the tiny, minuscule little things that I have to offer and that you would speak to us through it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Oh, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. That's how the verse goes. All right, well, I'm going to have to... Strip down now. <laughs> yes, that's what I want. I first came in and I was like, man, it's kind of cold. And I was, it was nice sitting here. And then now I'm... Keep one layer on. Yeah. I will keep one on. All right. Oh, that song always gets me. Um... Gosh, whenever, when I hear that song, it just, every time it gets me, we talked a couple weeks ago, I think it was in uh, numbers, but that was, that's literally the blessing that, that Yahweh, the Lord gave to the priests to bless the people, to bless Israel. And I just think about, I don't know where any one of you guys are in your hearts with the Lord. I don't know where you're at in your walk with the Lord. But what I know is that the Lord knows where you're at, probably even better than you do. Well, for sure better than you do, because he knows you all together. And we are so duplicitous, and we are so um, ready even to lie to ourselves and justify our sin. And it's the, it says in Jeremiah that the heart is, is deceitful and wicked above all others. Who can know it? And even as human beings, it's even hard for us to know our own heart. And yet, the Lord knows it all together. And when I hear that song and I hear that blessing, I just, I just think to myself, if only we understood how great and good the Lord is and how greatly he desires to bless us and to walk with us and have relationship with us and to see us as whole, we would never turn away from him. If we understood the depth of his love for us, that he literally formed every single one of us in our mother's womb with the intention of calling you to himself, that you will be united with him forever. 
When we think about uh, becoming a Christian, as we kind of put it in our society, we kind of think about, uh, we mostly think about a religi- religious rites or ceremonies that we kind of follow. And that's the part, of, part of that is true, but we forget that what the Bible is talking about when it talks about us coming to know the Lord is that when we give our life to the Lord, when we make a decision to, that he is going to be our God, Jacob said when he was, when he was uh, lying down on the way to his uncle's house, he laid down at what is now called Bethel, and he put his head on a rock, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but as he was sleeping, he had a dream that there was this stairway to heaven, and he saw the angels coming up and going down. And as he was laying there, he saw the Lord himself standing beside him. And I was reading a book this week, and, he was, and the guy was saying, this is one of the pivotal messages of the entire Bible going forward. Because what the Lord, what it says is, unlike every other religion around them, around that whole area of, the, of the, uh, the Near East at that time, they had this image of the gods at the top of this ziggurat, at the top of this man-made mountain, like a pyramid with stairways that would go up. And if you could ascend it, you could maybe meet with God. But what Jacob saw was God standing at the base of it, with him. And what he said is, wherever you go, Jacob, I will be with you. I will be with you. The entire religion of Christianity is simply this. God wants you to leave whatever paltry, sinful, evil things that you're involved with that will only bring destruction and death into your life. And he wants to be with you. And what it means to come to the Lord is exactly what Jacob said. Jacob said, if you'll do that, Lord, if you'll be with me, you'll be my God. Who's your God? That's the entire question of your existence. Since the moment that he formed you and knit you together in your mother's womb, the entire purpose for which you were made was to walk through this earth, that in seeing everything that he has created, your heart would be convicted. There is a God. There is something greater than what I see that brought it all together. It is not by accident. It is intricately woven together and its existence is there to say to you, I see you. I want you. Come and be with me and let me be your God. The Lord wants you to be with him forever. Not in some sterile, broken relationship. One with him. And a perfect marriage between a husband and a wife where it says, in Genesis that the two shall become one flesh is merely a tiny little picture of what he wants you to have with him. And we always take that and we make it weird, oh, sex or something. No, intimacy, oneness with God forever. That's what you were made for. That's what we were all made for. I don't know where you're at. I don't know where your heart is, but I am telling you right now, do whatever it takes to make sure that is your eternity. Jesus said, it doesn't matter what's going on. If your eye is causing you to sin, pluck your eye out, rip it out of your head. If your arm's causing you to sin, cut it off. I want you guys to think about that imagery and think this is Jesus, the one that we always talk about. Well, Jesus, he's, he's loving, he's good. He is, he's so good and so loving that he would say to you, if your arm is in a trap, you've been walking through the woods of this world, through the trails of this world and you stepped upon a trap and it snapped upon you and you're now stuck in this sin. You're stuck in this thing, it has a hold of you. Gnaw off your arm if you have to. 
Do whatever so that you can be with me. Do whatever so you can have eternity with me. If that means you have to go into eternity without an arm, without an eye, without two arms, without any legs, do whatever it takes. Be vicious with yourself that you might come to be with me. That is how much he loves us. He loves us so much that he is willing to hurt us to bring us back to him. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. If you had a a friend and you started struggling with alcohol and you became an alcoholic and you were struggling to such a point that it was actually destroying your life, your marriage, your family, and your friend just kind of went along with it. Now for him, he could just have a couple beers and it was fine. But he never sat down and said to you, Sonny, dude, I love you, but this is becoming the thing for you that's going to destroy your life. Not that, it, not that Jeff's struggling with that. I'm just, I'm just pointing out one of my closest friends. Imagine, imagine what a terrible friend I would be if that, if that didn't come out of my mouth. If what I didn't say was, what the hell are you doing, man? You're destroying everything for this? You're going to lose everything for this? And that might hurt him. And it might even ruin our relationship. But if I was a good friend, I'd be willing to do that. That's what the Lord does for us. That's what Jesus does for us. He calls us out. He can be meek and mild, but he is also a warrior. He is also mighty. He's the living God. And I just want to encourage you guys, that has nothing to do with what we're going to go over today. But it just struck me that, man, I just hope you guys understand that it is so easy to get confused, to get off track, to get distracted, to get entangled, to get ensnared, to get enslaved in the things of this world, which today are and tomorrow will be gone. Jesus said, what if you could even gain the whole world? What would that be in comparison to losing your soul? What? Who cares? If you could become the most powerful, richest, most amazing person that ever existed on this world, and you had power unlike anyone else that has lived in human flesh, and he said, so what? It'll be gone like that. Guys, the Lord loves you. He wants your entire life. And what we're going to see today is a man who gives his entire life to the Lord. He's not a good man. He's not a righteous man. He's not a perfect man. He's certainly not a brave man. We're going to look at Moses. And what we're going to see is just a person like you and me. In fact, probably worse than us. I doubt many of us here have murdered anybody, but Moses did. So let's open Exodus 4. We'll jump in. No, can I say something? Yeah. I just want to, this is exactly what the Lord's been saying to me. And the whole thing, I believe in Josh, where it talks about constant, uh, uh, constant dedicating yourself. Mm-hmm. And what's that? Consecrating? Yeah, consecrating yourself. Thank you. And um, where it talks about that, and it's like, do it yourself. You have to seek. You have to prune and dig and root out with the help of the Lord and get rid of those things and just you got it and I just want to encourage you like what the Lord's been putting on my heart what you said there Mm -hmm. even a prayer I had for you today was that you would have the boldness to speak towards sin Mm -hmm. and my fear is for you is that you know you're dealing with family and a lot of close friends here and you may not want to hurt the feelings like you were saying as you would a friend Mm -hmm wouldn't want to do that but so my prayer was that you would be bold and you would be strong in those words oh amen Amen. and then i would just so just to finish that thought then i would just encourage all of you guys where where are you when when adam and eve were in the garden and they had just sinned the lord came through like he did every day and said at that time of day he would walk through in the coolness uh the coolness of the day 
And he said, Adam, where are you? And I would just ask you guys that, where are you? You guys know, you know where you're at. If you're not walking with the Lord, if you are not walking as closely to the Lord as you could, deal with it. And walk in the flesh, and you will not fulfill the desires. Walk in the spirit, you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. That's right. And the example of the eye and the arm is because we're walking in the flesh. Yep. And so if we want to avoid that, walk in the spirit, and we won't fulfill. Absolutely. And I want to encourage you guys, there's mercy and grace to do that. Like sometimes we hear that and we think, well, that's great for that person. Look at their, they're great. They're walking with the Lord. No, we're not. Every single person that you see here and every person you ever come across, no matter how amazing you think they are, is a tool. (laughs) I'm just putting it in today's vernacular. It's just true. That's true. We're nothing. We're just wretched. We're just wretched sinners. We're just terrible people. All we do is even in the best of us, the Lord says, even in our best, most righteous moments, in our righteousness, if we took all the goodness that we had and we laid it before him, he says, it would just be filthy rags before me. Used up. And really, literally that word is used up menstrual rags. I know that's gross, but it really brings it into what it really does is it shows us one. The Bible does not hold back. The Bible is, is brutal. It's graphic. It's gross. But it wants you guys to understand, I want you to be with me. The Lord knows who you are. That doesn't doesn't cause him to turn back. Maybe your significant other, if they see all of who you are, they start to go, oh my gosh. (laughs) We've all had those moments in our marriage. I I actually really haven't, but I know Anna has toward me. (laughs) She's like, oh my gosh. If you guys want more of this, Bethany and I are hosting an annual festivist. (laughs) We have a lot of problems with you people. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, go ahead. But I don't give me a like our song because to me that's what the body does is it keeps giving that blessing out to one another that we also see, yeah, you're not that great. But we also, like Jesus, love you and we want you to be part of our life and part of this family that lifts one another up and, and I think just that constant reminder like whatever it is we're thinking about walking in the flesh or just all these things that sometimes can feel so burdensome and we want to give up hope, but that song just reminds us not only is God all around us and within us and he's with us, but maybe even more, he's for us over and over, over and over. Every time we fall, he's for us getting back up. Every time we blow it, he's for us rising up again. Every time we're not what we hope, which is many times every day, he's still for us. And I think that it's such a great thing that we sing that every week to one another. Like he says, to mm. speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, because that's how we keep going down this road where we're like Jesus with the cross stumbling constantly and tough getting up under our own power. Mm. But we have all of each other to say, oh man, today's your day, you're down. Let me get you a hand, let me lift you up. Where we can say to each other, we say these things to you, like what you were saying about the alcoholic or whatever. Sunny. We say to you, oh my name. You know, oh, you know he's a. No, but just all the things that we struggle with, and I think especially in this world today, that when we look at somebody who we love, and 
Maybe they're living with their boyfriend. And I know tons of Christians or girlfriend who do that now. And they don't see that God has a reason for not wanting you to mm. do that. And the reason is, my gosh, you are so precious to him. Mm. It would be like the reason I wouldn't want my daughter to or my son to because I would be able to see now that I'm older that road. Mm. And I would be able to see, gosh, you couldn't commit right out of the gate. What are your chances? Like that's like us with the Lord without commitment. There's nothing. There's nothing. And thank God we have God's commitment to us because ours is never enough. But you know, being married, I think this is your dad's in my 40th year. You're right. But the thing I want to say is that also makes it so beautiful what God's saying to us because until you're older and you've done that, you don't get like, he's my safe place. He's my hiding place. He's my refuge. He's always with me and for me. And I'm just talking about play. So imagine what that must be like to have God be in that place who's always with you and always for you, who always has your back. I mean, like I always tell your dad, anything ever happened to you, I don't know how I breathe the next second. You're the air I breathe. You're my life here on this earth. And God is so much more than that. And so I just encourage you, if you're down or you are that person that's down right now and needs to be lifted up, hey, we're for you. And we're with you as a body of Christ. And more importantly, God is with you. And he's for you. Every time you stumble, he's for you. He's quickly grabbing you. I mean, his whole story is a story of, um, what is the word I'm looking for? Like he keeps responding to our losses and, and rewriting the plan of history in order to make it possible for us to be with him. And without him doing that, we would have been lost before we were even born. Mm. So I just think, wow, what a powerful thing to know mm. that God is with you and he's for you. I, I just, every day I can't believe really that he's for me. Who am I that the God of the universe would be for me, behind me, encouraging me, my cheerleader? Wow, wow, how do people live without that? How do people, when we don't know the future, and none of us know for sure that there's a God because we can't, you know, see him, why would anyone in their right mind choose to live without him? I just don't understand it at all when you could choose to live with him and be with him. Anyway, sorry. No, that's awesome. Yeah, and I think if you're at that place, I just I always think back to when I was 18. I hadn't been walking with the Lord for years. I was living in Salem. My friends that I lived with were dealing drugs. I was just in a really lost, I was just lost. And I remember each night kind of either passing out at a friend's house or we'd have parties at our apartment and just kind of going to my bed, maybe after I'd been thrown up or whatever, after getting high or getting drunk. But I just really remember being convicted of that I didn't know the Lord. And even though I called myself a Christian, I didn't know him at all. And I just remember over and over on those nights asking the Lord, please, Lord, if, if you can save me out of this, please, I don't, I don't even feel like I can repent. I don't feel like I can turn from these things. They have such a hold on my life. I don't even know how to turn back to you. I don't even know what that looks like. I just, help me. And I remember for months really praying that and just really actually years of, of being in this place where I was lost and knew I was lost, but didn't have the heart or the will to turn from my sin. And I remember it was right before I turned 18, I just, I'd been praying that for a long time and that conviction was 
becoming more and more present in my life every day, even where it would be like everybody would kind of be passed out in the apartment after we've been partying all night. And I would just be kind of sitting there not being able to fall asleep and just being like, I'm, I'm lost. I'm, I'm in darkness. I'm in total darkness. And so my encouragement would just be, that is exactly who the Lord came to save is sinners. One. And two, if you're in that place, he hears the prayer of somebody that's being honest. You can honestly say, Lord, I am so stuck in this sin. It's destroying me and I know it's destroying me and I want to turn from it. I don't even have the heart and will to turn from it. Change my heart, change my will. And you know what happened? The Lord did. He changed my heart. Something happened. I I began to desire it more and more. And that conviction continued to build, but so did my desire to want to turn back to him. And eventually one day I just said, Lord, you can have my whole life. If you will take this life that I've destroyed, that I have ruined, I was so blessed. I haven't had all these bad things that so many other people have had in their life. I've been blessed beyond measure, raised in an amazing family, and yet I threw it all away. But if you will take me back, you can have it. If you'll forgive my sins, you can have my life. And from that moment on, my life has changed and changed and changed from glory to glory. The Lord has continued to change me. And I'm not saying that I'm anything now, but what I am saying is I know the Lord. He knows me. He convicts me. He picks me up when I fall. And I haven't gone back to that old way of life. And that's a testament to who he is. And so wherever you're at, call out on the name of the Lord. Don't give up on yourself and don't give up on that place. That is the lie. The lie is you're not good enough, but that's the truth of it. You never have been. So quit telling yourself that you need to be. Call out to him. Grab on to him. When Jacob came before the angel of the Lord as he was on his way back to his homeland and he met the angel and it says he wrestled with this man until dawn and the man said, who was this angel of the Lord, he said, let me go. And he said, no. And he just clinged on to him and he wouldn't let him go and he wouldn't let him go. He said, I won't let you go till you bless me. He said, all right, your name's been Jacob, deceiver, heel grabber. Going forward, you will be called Israel, Prince of God. You'll be my child from here forward. That's wrestle with him. Ask, beg, do whatever it takes. Do it. All right, so we're looking at Moses. Moses has been called by the Lord at the burning bush to go to Israel. And we're in chapter four. Uh, He's already gone through a couple things. We're going to pick up in chapter four. It says, uh, Moses answered and said, what if they won't believe me? Chapter four, verse one of Exodus and will not obey me, but say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord asked him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff, throw it on the ground. He said, so Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. And the Lord told Moses, stretch out your hand, grab it by the tail. So he stretched out his hand and he caught it and it became a staff in his hand. This will take place, he continued, so that they will believe that the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. In addition, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. So he put his hand inside his cloak and when he took it out, his hand was diseased, resembling snow. He said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he did. And when he took it out, again, it had become like the rest of his skin. If they will not believe you and will not respond to the evidence of the first sign, they may believe the evidence of the second sign. And if they do not believe even these two signs or listen to what you say, 
take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground and the water you take from the Nile will become blood on the ground. But Moses replied to the Lord, "Uh, please, Lord, I've never been eloquent either in the past or recently or since you have been speaking to your servant because my mouth and my tongue are sluggish. The Lord said to him, oh, uh, who placed the mouth on humans? Uh, Who makes a person mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and I will teach you what to say. Moses said, please, Lord, send someone else. And then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. And he said, isn't Aaron the Levite, your brother? I know that he can speak well. And also he is on the way now to meet you. He will rejoice when he sees you. You will speak with him and tell him what to say. And I will help both of you or I will help both you and him to speak and will teach you both what to do. He will speak to the people for you. He will serve as a mouth for you and you will serve as a God to him and take this staff in your hand that you will perform the signs. All right, we'll stop right there. I don't think we'll make it through the whole chapter. Um, But I want to rewind a little bit back to chapter three. I want to look over the several times Actually, I'm going to read, I'm going to read, actually, I'm sorry, I'm going to read 18, 19, and 20. Said, uh, so right after this, it says, Then Moses went back to his father-in-law, Jethro, and said to him, Please let me return to my relatives in Egypt and see if they are still living. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now in Midian, the Lord told Moses, so now this is at a different place. Apparently the Lord speaks to him again. It says, in Midian, the Lord told Moses, return to Egypt for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons and put them on a donkey and returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took God's staff in his hand. Now, I want to go back a little bit. And what I want to look at is, Moses's response over and over to the Lord and then how the Lord, his rebuttal to Moses, because it's great to be humble. Um, God calls us to be humble, but sometimes it's a, sometimes it can be overboard encroaching upon who God is. So if you're so humble that you say, well, the Lord, I'm a wretch. Good. If you're humble and you say, well, I'm just, I'm the most sinful of everybody that's ever existed. Okay, good. But if you go so far as to say, and the Lord could never forgive me, now your humility is beginning to encroach on the character of God and is also now beginning to encroach upon lying. That's not true. That's not true. You could never go so far as to where the Lord would not forgive you. And so what I want to look at real quick is, is Moses and then how the Lord responds to him. So let's look at Exodus 3, uh, 10 through 12. And we looked at this last week, but uh, actually, I think it starts in 11. Uh, In 10, the Lord says, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh to get, you know, basically to tell him to let my people go. But Moses asked God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? So his first response, the Lord calls him. He's like, whoa, whoa, Lord, I'm no, I'm a no one. I'm nobody. And now let's see how the Lord responds to him. He says, he answered, 
And we, we talked about this last week a little bit. He said, I'll certainly be with you. Like Moses. Yeah, I know you're no one. That's you're just Moses. I get it. I'm God. I'm me. You're you. I'm me. I'm going to be with you. And then I love what he says, because I think it speaks directly to us as Christians and how we live our life and how we walk. And sometimes we get confused. Sometimes we get mixed up on what is the point or the goal. And the goal for Moses was, the Lord's going to tell him right here, the goal is to get back to Sinai, bring the, bring the people out of Israel and bring them back to Sinai. But what he says to Moses, the proof will be in the pudding. And he says this, he says, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that I am the one who sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this mountain. So God says to Moses, Moses says, I, I'm no one. He's like, well, I'm God. So, and I'll be with you. And here's going to be the proof that I'm God and that I'm with you. The proof will be several months from now when you're back here. He doesn't give him the proof right then. What he says is the proof will be in your final destination. The proof will be in the end of the journey. That's where the proof will be. That's, that's when you get to taste the pudding. That's when you get to see the end result is when you're here. Until then, you're going to be walking by faith somewhat. Now, it's not a, a blind leap of faith as those who are uh, atheist or those who are antagonistic toward God and Christianity will often say, it's just a blind. It's definitely not blind. He's speaking to a man in a burning bush. The man is about ready to tell him to throw his staff on the ground. That thing's going to turn into a snake. So this is not blind faith, but it is going to take faith on Moses' part to trust that God's going to bring him back. And God says, the sign that I am actually with you will be in the doing of that act. You coming back here, your final destination here at the mountain to worship me. That's how you'll know that I was actually with you the whole time. But... That's not enough for Moses. Moses will ask again. In verse 13, he says, uh, well, okay, yeah, okay. But if I go to the Israelites and they say, the God of your father sent me to you, and they ask, what's his name? Then what am I gonna do? And God goes into this whole thing that we really talked about last week where he tells them his whole name and his name is his character. His name is, his name he decides, he's not the, we talked about, he's not the God of thunder, the God of the sun or the moon or the God of war. He's the God of these three little uh, shepherd guys, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These no ones, these nobodies. That's who I am. I'm that God. Who? Well, you've heard of Abraham? No, we've never heard of him. Right, well, I'm his God. And what I'm gonna do to show you that I'm God is I'm gonna take this one little guy who's nobody and I'm going to make him into a great nation. And through this great nation is going to come this one called the Messiah or the Christ. And that Christ will be the savior of the whole world. So I'm going to show you who I am by my actions. I will be who I will be. I am who I am. You'll know who I am by how I, how I act, what I do. And this is how I do. This is how I do things. I take little things. I make them great. I take the weakest, the weakest of the weak, Unlike the world that says you need the strongest, the mighty. No, I take the weakest, the nobodies, the fools. I'm going to call you, Moses. You're going to be my first, my first prophet, but you can't even talk right. I'm going to, later on, I'm going to call Paul, who, Paul speaking of himself, his, his words aren't dynamic. He's not a great orator. But that's who God calls. He calls these nobodies, and he lifts them up. And that, that's who I am. He says, that, tell them that's who I am. That's my name. Right and that will be my name forever. I am who I am. 
and I'm the God of these three nobodies, but I'm going to make them great. So great that the whole world will be blessed through them. Moses is like, okay, you're still not, like, are you? Moses wants to get out of this. I don't think you're getting it here. Um, so then later in verse, uh, in chapter four, verse one, he says, well, okay, okay. But what if they won't believe me? And they say, no, the Lord didn't appear to you. And then the Lord says, okay, what do you have in your hand there? That's a staff, Lord. Okay, throw it on the ground, becomes a snake. And Moses runs from it. So it must have been pretty realistic and scary. <laughs> he says, grab it by the tail, he grabs it, turns back into a stick. He's like, okay, now make your hand leprous, pulls the hand out. It's disease, puts it back in, it's fine. And then finally he says, if they still won't believe you, take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dirt, it'll turn to blood. And then finally Moses is like, okay, I'll just, let me just be straight with you. <laughs> I see that you're not going to let this go. Uh, I just, I, I'm not, this isn't something I'm going to be doing. I don't want to do this. Send somebody else. And that's what he says. <laughs> he says in verse 11 and 12, he just says, finally, he's like, <laughs> he just goes, I, I just, or I'm sorry. No, I messed up there. First, first thing he says is I'm not a good order. I don't talk good. So he says, I just, Lord, actually, you know what? Yes. Okay. I see the snake. It's cool. It's scary. And I get it. Like they're going to believe me because you're going to do these amazing things. But I just, I don't talk good. And he's like, that's okay, because I made the mouth. Remember? I'm God. Oh, and I, I made eyes to see. And I decide who's mute. I decide who's deaf. I decide who's blind and who's seeing. So that's nothing for me. That's okay. I can deal with it. We'll make it work. And, and see, we, we do the same type of stuff. Whatever it is in our life that we think is a reason that we either can't walk with the Lord or that we can't be called by the Lord or used by the Lord, we come up with excuses to ignore and disobey God. And we continue to just kind of throw them out. He'll answer one. You'll be reading through the Bible maybe one day and you finally realize, I guess he can forgive me. Huh. But I suck at talking to people. He's like, what? That's, this again has nothing to do with you. It has to do with me. I'm God. You're no one. You're nothing. It doesn't matter to me. I don't have to use you. Do you, think, do you not think I could have come in a burning bush to Pharaoh and talked to him directly? I could have. I use people to glorify myself and to draw you into my presence and make you one with me so that you also can understand how great I am. I don't, that's, that's fine. You can't talk. I don't care. And then this is when Moses is finally like, okay, now I'm just going to actually just, I'm going to be straight with you, Lord. This is not something I want to do. And that's what, he, and that's what he says actually in verses uh, 18. It says in verse 18, or no, it doesn't. I'm skipping ahead. Yes, 13. It says, Moses said, please, Lord, just send somebody else. Okay. Like I just, that other stuff, I actually didn't expect you to answer me in the ways you did and didn't even make a lot of sense to me. But I just, don't you know that I don't want to do this? And so the Lord finally, it says his anger starts to burn against Moses and he makes a concession for Moses. So he says, fine, Moses, you know what? Your brother's Aaron and he can talk just fine. So you know what? He'll be the one who does the talking. You tell him what to say, and I'll work with both of you. Now, what we're going to see later on is maybe this wasn't the best arrangement, because what we're going to see later on is as they come out of Egypt, and Moses goes up to the mountain to get the law from God, he's gone for 40 days and 40 nights. And what happens is down below, the other leader 
Aaron, who was a, a leader that was brought about by concession, he's not as committed to following the Lord as Moses is. And what Aaron does is when the people say, make us new gods, because we don't know what happened to this guy, Moses, he says, okay. And he takes all their gold jewelry and he melts it down and he makes some golden calves for them. And he says, Israel, behold, your God who brought you out of Egypt. So Aaron becomes a little, and I'm not, I don't want to just totally ruin the reputation of Aaron. I think Aaron does end up loving the Lord and he walks with the Lord and, and I think the Lord loves him. But Aaron becomes a real snag to the children of Israel. Later on, so that actually happens in Exodus 32, 1 through 35. You can read that. It's the whole story of the golden calf. Aaron is really the one that institutes this. He gives in. He gives in to the desire of the people. One thing that you'll notice with Moses, as reticent as he was to be this leader, as reticent as he was to be the one to call the people and lead them out of Egypt, the guy has a, just an amazing heart. And you never see him, despite all the turmoil that happens, all the rank rebellion that happens by the people of Israel, he never turns back in his heart back to the other gods. He never says, okay, because all of you, hundreds of thousands of people want me to do this other thing, I will. Okay, I get it. No, he always says, no, I, I stand with the Lord. But Aaron's not that way. And as soon as there's pressure, he folds. And he does what the people at large want him to do. He makes the golden calves. Later, he'll become jealous of Moses in Numbers. And he'll actually rebel against Moses, he and Miriam. So Moses, Miriam, and Aaron are siblings. And later in Numbers, Miriam and Aaron will say, hey, Moses, who are you? God talks to us too. So, you know, they don't have to listen to just you, Moses. And then the Lord says, actually, why don't you three come out here and I'm going to talk with you. And you guys know how that goes. I do that almost daily with my kids. Everybody come here. They've been fighting. Something's going on. Everyone in here right now. <laughs> And then I lay it out. And what the Lord does is he lays it out for them. He says, yeah, you guys might be prophets and there might be prophets in Israel and they get a vision or a dream. Who else do I speak with face to face? Aaron, Miriam, is there somebody else? I, do you know someone else that I speak with face to face? Moses, that's the only one, Moses. And then Miriam gets leprosy all over her whole body. Like the Lord says that this isn't how it's gonna happen. Moses is my leader. He's the one I've chosen. You're here to help lead because Moses was too cowardly to take up the full mantle of responsibility and authority. So Aaron really does become a snag in, in, in God's call of the people of Israel and even in Moses's leadership. Um, now, that's, that's the way it went and the Lord incorporates this and it becomes part of, of Israel's nation going forward because Aaron and his family actually become the high priests. But this was not what God originally wanted. It was a concession that he made for Moses. Now, as we get into verse 18, we see that Moses does not actually go immediately to Egypt. He goes back to his, his father-in-law's house, Jethro in Midian. And then from there, it seems like there's another. So it seems like Moses is still not fully into this thing. Because even there, the Lord has to tell him, okay, Moses, you know what else? Like, you're still here in Midian, man. All those people that wanted to kill you are dead. I know you're scared of that. And then finally, we see some action by Moses where he gathers everybody up and gets ready to go. Now, as we look at this, what I want to point out to you guys is, again, Moses is one of the most godly examples we have in the entire Bible. So this is certainly not to bash Moses. 
But it is instructive for us, as the New Testament says, these things that happened to Israel and to the patriarchs are there for our instruction so that we might learn by them. How could he have responded better? Now, we, we see as he goes on, he, he really does just take on this responsibility that's amazing. And we really see this just a beautiful heart and will by Moses. He's constantly just willing to walk with the Lord, come hell or high water, he won't give up and he won't give in and he just keeps going. But there's some examples in the Bible that I want to look at briefly and then, and, and we'll close. But what I want to look at is just, there's some other people in the Bible that have amazing responses to the Lord's call. And so I want to encourage you guys that wherever you're at, as we spoke earlier, even though that wasn't really part of this teaching, the Lord doesn't really care where you're at. You could be a murderous 80 year old sheep herder in the middle of the desert and he could still desire to call you to do something in his kingdom for him. And it really doesn't have anything to do. It really has to do with you. It really has to do with who he is and how he does things in this world. The way he does things in this world is with people. He partners with individual human beings. He also does it corporately like with Israel and with the church, but his specific calling is individual. It's to each of us. And he has a plan, or as it talks about in the New Testament, he has good works that we should walk in, that he has actually, before the foundation of the world, set them up for you to walk in. So let's look at a couple people. Uh, I want to look at Peter real quick. Peter's a, a, an awesome example because Peter has a little bit of this Moses tendency, and then he just jumps full bore. Kind of like Moses, once Moses gets to Egypt, he's, he's very Peter-like. He's just going. He's gung-ho. Let's turn to uh, Luke 5.8. So I'll kind of set this up. Jesus is uh, preaching. There's a great crowd. Uh, and he's been talking and he's by the sea of, of Galilee, or I'm sorry, the lake of Gisenaret. And he says, uh, then he sat down. I'm going to go actually starting halfway through verse three. Then he sat down speaking of Jesus and was teaching the crowds from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, who later on will be called Peter, uh, put out into the deep water and let your nets down for a catch. Ah, master, we've worked hard all night, Simon said. And it was a long night and we caught nothing. Uh, but if you say so, I'll, I'll let down the nets. And when they did this, they caught a great number of fish and their nets began to tear. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled both boats so full that the boats actually began to sink. And when Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me because I am a sinful man. And I think so often that is our response when we're confronted with the message of who God is, when we realize the enormity of his goodness and awesomeness, that often is our response. And I think it's, it's, it's not a wrong response. I thought it was pretty cool um, that Greg uh, had that, just that idea of that net going over the whole world because it really fits into what the Lord says to Peter. He, he says, uh, verse nine, for for he and all those with him were amazed at the catch of fish they had taken. And so James and John, Zebedee's sons, who were Simon's partner, 
Oh, and so were James and John, who were Zebedee's, par- uh, uh, Zebedee's sons and Simon's partners. And the Lord said, don't be afraid, Jesus told Simon. From now on, you will be catching people. And then they brought the boats to land and they left everything and followed him. I mean, that is, I mean, that, the, the net is the gospel. It is going out through the whole world and it's bringing people in. And, what he, and when Peter sees this amazing thing that the Lord does, he's undone and he just says, Lord, get away from me, I'm sinful. He begins to realize who the Lord is in that moment. Now, it, this is before he actually makes the pro, uh, proclamation that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. But he's beginning, things are beginning to click together in Peter's mind. He's beginning to see there's something different about this guy. And he says, just go away from me, Lord, I'm sinful. But the Lord says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And then the amazing part about these guys is their response. They drop everything. They leave everything. I doubt any of us have left everything to follow the Lord. But in some parts of the world, that is the reality. When you follow the Lord, you leave everything. Your family abandons you. They, you're dead to them. You oftentimes lose your home. You lose your business. You lose everything you own to to know the Lord. I mean, that's an amazing thing, but these guys were willing to do that and they do it immediately. They see this one act by Jesus. They see this one amazing thing and they all leave and they go. I would encourage us that maybe that should be more of our response than um, you know, saying that we don't speak good. Uh, later, we see that Peter is still kind of, once he drops everything, he just, Peter really goes for it. And we see in Luke 22, Uh, Jesus is getting ready to be taken to the cross and the Lord is warning them that they're all going to, they're all going to fall away. And so in Luke 22 verse 31, Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Lord, he told him, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And the Lord said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you deny three times that you know me. There's, there seems to be in our call from the Lord and our walk with them, there seems to be a twofold danger. One is to overextend our humility until it encroaches upon the character and the truth of who God is. When we say things like, he could never forgive me, I'm too. Well, of course he, what? That's not what the Bible says. That's not what he says. So you've gone too far in your humility. The other is, and probably the more prevalent danger, especially in our time and in our culture, is to go the other way and say, Lord, I'm going to do all these great things for you. I'm, dude, these guys? Yeah. Me? No. I'm here. I'm your man. I'm down, man. I am down. I'll die for you. I don't care. I'll totally die for you. And the Lord says, you know, Peter, actually, you're not going to do that. What you're going to do is deny me. And so what I would suggest to us is that we have a healthy balance of both humility and not pride, but confidence in who the Lord is. It is fine to be like, yes, I'm going to follow you. And yes, I'm going to take this calling up. And yet to have the wherewithal 
and the insight into who we are to realize I am not worthy of this task and I'm not worthy of this calling. So give me strength. You know, like the man I, I always have loved since I was young because I've always felt like I have faith, but I don't have very much faith, Lord. And I could see myself turning from you. I could see myself denying you. And that, that is such a fear for me in my life. And it has been since I first gave my life to the Lord at 19. I have just feared that so often in my life that some, something would happen, whether it was sin or persecution or something that my heart would turn from the Lord because I know I'm fickle and I know, like that old hymn says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I, f I feel that in me. I feel that darkness. I feel that pull to the world. I feel that cowardice. It's there. It lives with me every day. But there was a man that came to Jesus one time and he said, Lord, please heal my son. And the Lord says, do you believe that I could? And he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. And to me, that is the perfect union of where we should be when we approach the Lord. Lord, I know you can do anything. I do, but I also recognize that in me is a lack. It's not because it's not your fault. It's me. I, I lack something. So I believe, but help my unbelief. Meet me where I'm at. And the awesome, amazing part of that story is the boy and man don't go away unhealed. The Lord heals him. The Lord hears that prayer. He hears that request. He hears that cry of honesty from the heart. He doesn't push him away. He doesn't smash out the smoldering ember or snap that already broken twig. He, he blows it. He blows upon that ember to, to turn it into a flaming fire. That's what he does in us. Where is he calling you? To what is he calling you? He's for sure calling you to himself. That's without a doubt. That is without a doubt. He wants the gospel to be preached to every single person. So if you are not walking with the Lord in the way that you ought to be, he is calling you to himself. And if you can't do it, I encourage you, Lord, I believe I want to walk with you. Help my unbelief. Help me to walk with you. That should be our response. Now let's move on to some people that have amazing responses and we should seek and really ask the Lord in our prayer time, Lord, give me a heart and a will and a desire like this person. Let's look at Paul. Let's look at Paul in Acts. Paul is like Moses. He's going to be a murderer that is called, and it's an unlikely calling. And then when he goes, he just goes gangbusters for the Lord, and he never looks back. He, he just, he bends every sinew of his being to serve the Lord. And that's all he does his entire life from that point forward. And you see it in him. And you see that he had this kind of makeup from the beginning because what Paul sees, and his name is Saul before he turns to the Lord, but what he sees is he sees the church. And as a devout Jew, as a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling religious class of Israel, he sees a heresy and he finds it despicable. He finds it disgusting and it is grossly uh, evil to him. And so he goes after it with his whole heart. So what he starts doing is he starts getting letters from the Roman Empire, giving him and entrusting him with authority to go arrest church members. And so Saul starts going out and he starts arresting and murdering, killing, putting to death in the name of heresy with authority from the Roman government. He starts going around all over Judea and arresting Christians and then having them put to death for heresy against the true and living God. And this goes on for a while. And then in Acts 9, something amazing happens. So Acts 9, 
This is called the story of the road to Emmaus, which is why we named our daughter Emmaus. Or I, I take that back. This is the road to Damascus, and we didn't name her Damascus. <laughs> I got my road stories mixed up there. <laughs> That's her middle name. Just really. <laughs> why am I named this? Because of streets. <laughs> That's right. All right, Acts 9. Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest and he requested letters from them, from them to the synagogues in Damascus. So that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, now this was the original name of Christianity. It was not called Christianity in the beginning. It was called those who were of the way. Now later at Antioch, people are making fun of the Christians and they start calling them, oh, look, it's the little Christs. And the Christians were like, dude, that is so true. Thank you. And they started calling themselves that. They took the insult and they made it their name. And it's passed on now for all of us. It's amazing. They took this insult, they, they keep it. They're like, you know what? You, you know what? You saw something. You're exactly right. We're supposed to be little Christ. Let's go with that name from now on. So he's out there. He's going after anybody who is of the way that he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him and falling to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Uh, who are you, Lord? Saul said, I am Jesus the one you are persecuting, he replied, but get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound, but seeing no one. And Saul got up from the ground and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So he was blinded by this vision. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. And he was unable to see for three days and he did not eat and nor did he drink. And there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord, he replied, get up and go to the street called straight. The Lord said to him, to the house of Judas and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he is praying there in a vision. He has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Oh, gosh, God is awesome. God has orchestrated all of this. He's giving one guy a vision of another guy. He's blinded one man and he's spoken to him in a vision. But even though Saul could see the vision, the people with him couldn't. The calling of God and the ways of God are beyond our understanding, but they are awesome. And Ananias is awesome. We don't really hear about him again, but listen to what he does. He knows exactly who Saul is. And he responds to the Lord and says, uh, uh, Lord, um, I've actually heard from this guy, about this guy from a lot of people. Uh, and how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he also has authority here from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles. You guys, look around. I don't think many of us here are Jewish. 
hey, this guy was specifically set up, chosen by God. Later, Paul will say, chosen from the womb by God to bring the message of the saving salvation of Jesus Christ to us, the demon worshipers, the child sacrificers, the ones who would set up temples to false gods and worship them, the ones who would bow down to demons he said, I want them too. And he called one of the most brilliant men that lived at the time who hated the church. And he said, you're my one. See what you're doing right now? You don't even know. You're my guy. And I know that you don't even like Gentiles because you're so incredibly Jewish. But I'm going to take you and I am going to turn everything upside down for you. I'm going to use you to be my messenger to the dogs, because that's what they called them. That's what they called the Gentiles, the dogs. That's how lowly they looked at them. And one time, even, even some women came to Jesus one time, but they were from outside Israel. And they said she, she wanted the Lord to do something for her. And he said, isn't the food for the children, not, not the dogs? Jesus said this, insulting. I mean, it's an insulting thing to say to this Gentile woman. But Jesus was drawing something out of her and he wanted to show all the people around him who were Jewish what his true heart was. And so he said, don't you think the food ought to go to the children, not to the dogs? And she said to Jesus, don't even the dogs eat from the scraps that fall from the children's hands at the table? And the Lord said, this woman has more faith than all of you in Israel. You guys, he called this guy the most Jewish of Jewish men. And he said, I am going to make you a chosen instrument. And that's each one of you. He has a call on each one of your lives. You are to be an instrument in his army, in his symphony. You have a special purpose. No one else will fulfill that purpose. He has called you specifically to be instruments for his glory. It's, oh, it's so awesome. And he calls all of us. He calls all of us. Every single person sitting here and every single person that has ever drawn breath into their lungs was called and purposed and made to know the Lord and to be used by a purpose for which he created them on this earth. So he calls Ananias. He says, Ananias, I get it, but it's all right. This man is a chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles, kings and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now, it says Ananias went and he entered the house and he placed his hands on him and he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road you were traveling has sent me so that you may regain sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And at once something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. And then he got up and he was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some time. And immediately he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He is the son of God. Immediately. He gets up, he's healed, baptize me. Whatever it was that I've been waiting for my entire existence, this is it. 
I've been waiting for the Messiah of the Jews. Now I've met him. Everything else can stop in my life. Nothing else matters. Later on, he'll say he counted everything as a pile of dung or crap in comparison with knowing Jesus Christ. And you see it immediately. Baptize me. Let's go. Teach me what it's about. And then he immediately starts going to the synagogues every Saturday when they're meeting. We found the son of God. It's Jesus Christ. And he goes and he goes and he goes until he's beheaded by Nero. And that is his entire existence. He does everything in his power to spread the gospel. And every single thing that he does is for the message of Jesus Christ and to bring him glory. And God knew if I can get a hold of his heart, I can turn him for me. He is going to be an instrument to bring my message to the rest of the world, to all of the Gentiles. Let us have a heart like that when we realize the enormity of the message that has been brought to us, the gravity, the depth, the importance of what has been taught to us, why are we wasting our lives on things that don't matter? Uh, that's my, been my question to myself for many years now. I'm 38, I've known the Lord for almost 20 years. Why have I wasted so much time? And I don't mean that to put a guilt trip on you guys. I am just saying you guys each are meant to be an instrument for the Lord, for his purposes. What are you doing? What is that call? And why have you as of yet not jumped in with both feet? And I think a lot of us would fall very much on the Moses side. Well, I got this going on. Yeah, I'm God. Well, also, what if they say stuff to me? <laughs> I'm God. What if after I say stuff to them, they still don't think like I think and they don't believe? Turn your staff into a snake. I pour some water on the ground. I'll turn into, like, I will meet you wherever you're at. Well, but I'm also bad at talking. I'm not good at it. Right. I made you that way. So just go. Okay, I haven't been told, I really actually just don't want to go. Yeah, I know. Just go. <laughs> Aaron will do the talking because you're, yeah, like you won't shut up. So just go. Uh, I want to look at two more people and we'll be done. I want to look at, I want to look at Mary and Luke one because I think unfortunately what happens a lot of times is Mary gets a lot of, she gets talked about a lot at Christmas time and she gets, you know, she's really venerated by Catholics. And so I feel like Protestants have kind of pushed back the other way where they almost don't want to talk about Mary. And it's really a shame because she's one of the greatest examples of faithfulness in the entire Bible. And you won't find another person like her in the entire Bible. So instead of being so concerned that you know, well, the Catholics have kind of put Mary on this pedestal. We don't know if we should. Okay, that's fine. Don't put her on some pedestal that's too high, but you can still look at her and have a vast amount of respect and learn from her. Here's this young woman. She's not very old. She's probably somewhere between the ages of 15 and 20. We don't know exactly, but she's a young, young woman. And look at her beautiful heart for the Lord. Luke 1. Uh, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin 
engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. It is pretty weird. It's a pretty weird greeting. You've never seen an angel. Suddenly this being appears to you and is just like, you're favored by God. And that's, that's just how the conversation starts. You turn, you see an angel, and this is how they start out. So she's kind of freaked out. She's kind of afraid. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. And then the angel told her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will rule or he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. And Mary asked the angel, how can this be since I have not had sexual relations with a man? And the angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her, her who was called childless, for nothing will be impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. And then the angel left. Nothing will be impossible. How, how could this be? I, I, how could I be pregnant? I haven't even, I haven't, Joseph and I aren't married yet. I haven't had sex with them. Well, the Lord is actually going to overshadow you by the Holy Spirit and you're going to be conceived of the Holy One you will have a child that will be called the son of God. And she doesn't argue from there. He says, the things that are impossible with men, with me, they're possible. Nothing will be impossible with God. And she says, it's just, this should be our heart right here. And this is what we should pray for. I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. Let it be done to me according to your word. As we come to the Lord's word, as we read his desire for us, as we read who he is, and who he calls us to be, that should be our response. I am the Lord's servant. Let it be done to me according to your word. And that's exactly how, how Saul was when he became Paul. He, that was the beginning of his message was, he will be a, message, a messenger to the Gentiles, and I will show him all the things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Saul goes, okay, I'm in. I'm in. I'm ready to suffer for you. I'll do it. You're God? Okay. You know, in Acts or in, in, uh, in the Old Testament, I was going to read the story of Esther because she has a very similar heart to Mary. She is a, a princess of the queen or of the king, sorry. She's a, the queen and the, the king has made an edict, though he's not totally aware of the edict, but it's an edict to allow this one guy named Haman to wipe out the Jews. And so her uncle comes to her, Mordecai, and says, Esther, there's something really bad going on and you need to know about it. Um, there's been a edict that's been put out that on this certain day, everyone is allowed to take up weapons against us and wipe out all the Jews. Now, Haman 
hated the Jews because he was a very powerful man in the kingdom. He wasn't the king, but he was very powerful. And whenever he came out, people would bow before him. But Mordecai, being a devout Jew, would not bow before him. And it pissed the guy off to the degree that he said, who's this Mordecai guy that won't bow before me? And people told him, oh, he's a Jew. He's from this one area. He's like, fine, I'm gonna, the, I've got the king's ear. I'm going to kill all of them. If these people won't bow before me, I'm going to kill all of them. And he makes this plan to do this, to kill all of them. But Mordecai comes to Esther, and I, you know, I will just read it because I don't want to butcher it. It's Esther 4, 8 through 17. And Esther is, I think, right before Job. Boom. 8 through 17 says this. They plotted all together to come and fight against... Oh, I was going to say, that doesn't sound like it. That was Nehemiah. I can't. Oh, Elijah, go for it. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction. They might show it to Esther and explain to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter. Okay, I'm going to pause you right there. So what he's, what he's this is what Mordecai is saying to his niece. He says, Esther, we're going to be wiped out. You need to go and talk to the king. And she says, you know the law, and this is the law. If anybody enters into the king's presence without first being summoned, they will be immediately put to death. The only thing that can save them from being put to death is when the king sees them coming in, if he raises his scepter as though to say, it's okay, they can come before me. If the king does not move the scepter, that person is taken and put to death for presuming themselves to be worthy to enter the king's presence, okay? So, what Mordecai is asking her to do is a death sentence. Go and talk to the king. She's like, no, he hasn't called me to talk to him. Go, go and do it. Well, I can't. I'll be killed. Go ahead. But as for me, I have not been called to, the, to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai that Esther had, what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house shall perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Okay, I'm going to stop you right there. There's, it goes on. But you guys have probably all heard that verse, for such a time as this. The point that Mordecai is making is in this, the, the book of Esther, just to kind of give you guys a little bit of a background, is... The name of the Lord is never mentioned in the entire book. The name of God is never mentioned in the book. And yet what we see is the providence of God in calling someone to a position for his purpose. And so she is brought to be a queen, one of many, because she is beautiful. She's drop dead gorgeous. But he's got many queens. And the queen is not allowed to go into the king's presence. And yet Mordecai says, you need to, because we're going to all be wiped out unless we get relief from the king to help us. And then he says, 
Make no mistake. There will be deliverance from someone else. But maybe you have been brought here for such a time as this. Now in Acts 17, this would be my last message to you guys. This is the last verse I'm going to read. In Acts 17, it says this. And I just, whenever I hear that verse, whenever I hear that word for such a time as this, it always makes me think about time uh, in, in the eyes of the Lord. Like you think about Israel. Israel was in Egypt. It was a 400 year period. And yet the Lord knew that was going to happen. He allowed it to happen. And it was part of his plan. And so in his timing, he sent Moses to bring them out of Egypt. And in the Lord's timing, it says in the fullness of time, Christ came. The Lord knows what's happening within human history. And he has orchestrated his movements, his plan within human history to bring about his will. And so he waited. He didn't do it immediately. It wasn't like the children of Israel went down to Egypt and as soon as things went bad or Joseph wasn't favored, he went out and got him. No, he waited. And it wasn't like after thousands of years of people living and dying and, and living in a world apart from God, he could have sent Jesus at any time, but it says he sent him at the right time. And we often question, I don't think we question so much I really don't think we question so much why do bad things happen as much as why is God's timing not more aligned with mine? So I could take somebody attacking me and trying to murder me as long as God's timing is, Lord, help me. And right then an angel comes and cuts off the guy's head. Then I'm like, cool, that was awesome. I see why you let that happen for a second and now I get it. What we don't understand is why when it's a lifetime of suffering and then your children's lifetime is a lifetime of suffering, and then their children is a lifetime of suffering. And we look at the Lord and we say, surely this can't be your plan. And yet the Lord tells us in scripture, he has timed these things out according to his will for the benefit of all of humanity. And Acts 17 says this. halfway through verse 23. To an unknown God, therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who has made the world and everything in it. He, this is Paul, of course. So we, we have our Gentile guy and he's talking to Gentiles in Greece. And he's at the Areopagus, which is the place where all the philosophers and religious thinkers would go and argue. And he says to them, hey, I noticed when I was coming up here, you guys have this one shrine and on the inscription it says, to the unknown God. So just in case they had hundreds of gods, but to cover all their bases, in case there was a God they didn't know about, the God of algae. I don't know, something we don't even know about yet, but he's there. Let's make a shrine to him just so we don't piss anybody off. He says, that's actually the God I want to talk to you about, the one you don't know about. You know lots of gods, you don't know this one. Let me tell you who he is. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things that they have. He doesn't need you. He gives you everything. He doesn't need anything from you. From one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth. Again, this is, goes directly in contrast with things that we have believed for hundreds of years and led to many atrocities. Just imagine if the British Empire 
though they knew about the Lord, would have taken that teaching right there to heart. Every one of these people that you're going to oppress, that you're going to overcome, that you're going to rule over, is just as human as you are. In fact, you're the same nation as they are. You're all made from one blood. There's no difference between you. And that's a side tangent, but from one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined, this is what I wanted to get to. And he has determined their appointed times and the boundaries where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him, we live and move and have our being. He appointed the place that you live. You live here. You were born in this country. You live in Oregon. You live in Bend. And you live at this time for one purpose, that you might grope for him and find him. But he is not far from you. He has animated who you are, in fact. He has made you and you exist by his power. Later on, it'll say that he is so close to each one of us and salvation is so close to each one of us that it is on our tongue. For with the tongue, one professes faith in Jesus. You guys, he appointed Esther to be beautiful at that time that the king would call her in to be his wife so that she could save her people, Israel, from being wiped out. And he has made each one of you to live where you live right now for his purpose. Maybe you're a Moses. Maybe you're a Mary. Maybe you're an Esther. Maybe you're an Ananias and you're the one who's going to introduce someone like Paul to the Lord. I don't know. Neither do you, but he does. And when he calls you, do not push back so hard that you incur his anger like Moses finally did when he says, actually, I just don't want to go. And the Lord's like, ah, Moses. Don't do it. Have a heart like Paul. Have a heart like Mary. Have a heart like Esther. Be willing to risk everything. Be willing to jump in with both feet. He has made you for his purposes. And whether he calls you at the age of 15 like Mary, or he calls you at the age of 80 like Moses, let your response be, I am the Lord's servant. Let your word be done to me. Or let it be done to me according to your word. Lord, please let us have that heart. Lord, I pray for these saints right here. We are sheep, Lord. You say we are your sheep and you are our shepherd. Shepherd us, Lord. Shepherd us in the right way. If you need to break some legs and sling us over your shoulders that we learn to hear your voice, do it. If we need to be sat down by the cool and, and still water to be refreshed, Lord, do it. If we need to be fed on that lush green pasture, Lord, do it. If we are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, Lord, don't let us fear any evil because we know that your rod and your staff, they comfort us. You're with us. You're there even in that moment. So wherever we might be, Lord, let us humbly say we are your sheep. Let us hear your voice and let us respond. Let us not turn back. Let us not cower. Let us not fear. Let us not rebut you. But rather... Let us be both humble and confident, confident in who you are, humbled by who we are, willing to hear your call and to jump all the way in, just like your beautiful servant Mary did, Lord. We love you. We bless you. 
We thank you. Fulfill your purpose in our lives. Make us the instruments you have called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Noah.